Gracias. Double Elvis. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Roderick David Stewart. Rod. Rod the Mod. The raspy, swaggering half-Scotsman with a penchant for football, Ferraris, and fast women. Not to say he isn't talented. He was discovered at 18, the early 1960s, busking with a harmonica in a railway station, fresh off a grave-digging job, spotted by superstar bluesman Long John Baldry. From there, it was the Jeff Beck group, The Faces, Maggie May. You wear it well. Do you think I'm sexy? And most women did. Alana Stewart, Kelly Emberg, Rachel Hunter, Penny Lancaster. But this isn't about Rod the Mod. This is about a Swedish starlet named Britt Eklund, who was with Rod during the height of his hedonistic 1970s fame. The model, Bond girl, ex-wife to Peter Sellers, paramour to producer extraordinaire Lou Adler, and jilted ex who refused to put up with Rod in his roguish ways. This story is about a girl. famous, Britt Eklund has said, but not for the reasons I still hold sacred. She wanted more, to be a successful actress, respected and taken seriously, an ugly duckling who blossomed into one of the 1970s great sex symbols. You know the story. Not a terribly unfair request, considering she's made more than 25 movies, and even some good ones like The Night They Raided Minsky's, The Wicker Man, and The Man with the Golden Gun. But instead, Britt Eklund, born Britt Marie Eklund in Stockholm in 1942, is known more for her personal life, saucy Scandinavian muse to Sellers, squire to Stewart, party girl extraordinaire on the arm of record producer Lou Adler, the guy who discovered the mamas and the papas and produced Tapestry by Carol King. When I give myself to a man, she reflected, it is a total commitment that imprisons me, for better or worse. Things started out nicely for Brit in Sweden at the dawn of World War II. Life was calm enough in Stockholm, and all she knew of the war was that her father was in the army reserves and kept a gas mask nearby. Sometimes he showed it off at parties at their ornate apartment in the city center, stuffed with antiques. They had plenty of money. Her grandfather had founded a women's clothing store, which he passed down to her dad, who sailed on a yacht and played golf while her long-suffering mother stayed home to raise her and her three brothers. Britt wasn't always beautiful. At school, in fact, she was gawky and awkward. Heavy, as she described herself. Big ears, big teeth, average grades. 
She developed a keen sense of humor to try to make up for her perceived shortcomings. When she did try to look more feminine, maybe with some lipstick, her father made her wash it off. So she began to rebel, dyed her hair blonde, trying to look like sex symbol actress Bridget Bardot, who was every girl's idol back then. She shed some weight, grew into her features. She would sneak out at night, even though her father put a broomstick in the door so he'd wake up whenever she snuck back in. One night, she stayed out too late, and he beat her. When her mother tried to intervene, well, he hit her too. But it was confusing. Her father also began to appreciate her beauty, take her out on the town and leave her mother at home, buy her dresses. Sometimes she'd spot her father flirting with other women while they were out too. And she began to see the marriage for what it always had been, a facade. And so she struck out on her own. She went to acting school and ballet school, paying her way as a hat check girl after her father stopped paying the tuition. She got jobs in commercials for gum and toothpaste. She even booked jobs as a Bridget Bardot lookalike. She was discovered in Italy. That's how these things usually go. Sitting in a coffee shop in the Via Veneto in Rome by scouts from 20th Century Fox. And that's when things started moving fast. Daryl Zanuck, the miniature monarch of Hollywood, signed her to a seven-year contract, flew her to London, draped her in furs, showed her to the press, started her with some small film roles, and gave her a new name, Grit Eklund. And a new boyfriend, comedy genius Peter Sellers, who ordered his valet to her hotel room to summon her for a date, gave her a puppy and every flower in the Dorchester Hotel's flower shop to win her over. She was 21 years old. He was 38. It was a strange pairing, Brit the innocent blonde bombshell, and Sellers, the bespectacled, awkward, neurotic star of the BBC's absurdist comedy, The Goon Show, antagonist of Lolita, and the future Inspector Clouseau of The Pink Panther. A man with a pathological fear of the color purple and an abiding belief in horoscopes. Days after their wedding, Sellers flew to Los Angeles for a film and sent his new bride a lengthy letter obsessing that she might leave him or be unfaithful and saying he wanted to have violent sex with her. It was signed with 25 kisses. Affairs and terrible fights commenced, with servants left to pick up the literal pieces. Sellers had a fling with Mia Farrow. In the quest for a sexual thrill with Brit, he inhaled poppers and proceeded to suffer eight heart attacks over the course of three hours, leaving him fighting for his life. Brit gave birth to a daughter, Victoria, almost aborted at Sellers' request, who would go on to some notoriety as the best friend of Hollywood madam Heidi Fleiss. Brit and Peter managed to fit in parties with the royal family, photo shoots with Lord Snowden and Princess Margaret, and Brit achieved a celebrity status that seemed unthinkable for the 22-year-old starlet just a couple years earlier. She said, Our marriage lurched crazily on like a doomed ship seeking navigation in uncharted waters. I tried so hard to understand Sellers. I related his dark moods to the pressures and ambiguities of his genius. 
After four rocky years, it ended after a dramatic dinner at the Excelsior Hotel in Rome. Sellers was enraged by the paparazzi. A huge fight followed when Eklund permitted them to take the couple's photograph, enraging her husband and igniting his hair-triggered temper. Shrieking echoed down the hotel hallway. She left before dawn, fleeing the hotel and flying to Sweden, sending for Victoria and the nanny. Britt called their marriage emotional and psychological warfare. But her battles were not over. Her biggest successes on film were with Peter Sellers. As his ex-wife, she found herself back at square one, struggling for parts. On top of that, she was broke. Nearly half a million pounds in debt as the result of bad investments. She could not afford to turn down any work. And so she ended up doing movies like The Year of the Cannibals, a film which is worse than it sounds. She was offered another movie that she didn't want to do. Get Carter starred Michael Caine as a gangster, but it required Britt to do a nude and sexually explicit scene. Her agent told her she had to take it. But the gritty revenge tale became a respectable hit, and Britt's sensual turn as the gangster's mole made her suddenly very popular. So by the early 1970s, she was a star in her own right. She restarted her romantic life, dating actors Warren Beatty and George Hamilton, who apparently proposed to her multiple times and would ultimately marry Alana Hamilton, who went on to marry, well, Rod Stewart. Lord Litchfield, cousin of Queen Elizabeth, proposed to her, but the royal life was not for her. She was dating record producer Lou Adler, who was estranged from his wife, Shelley Fabre, and for all intents and purposes single, and was living with him in Stone Canyon and then in Malibu, down the beach from Ryan O'Neill, with people like Jack Nicholson and Mick Jagger floating through. By the time she was set to star in the original production of the cult classic The Wicker Man, she was pregnant. I'm not going to marry you, Lou told her straight up. We'll still see each other, when we can. Britt thought of actresses like Vanessa Redgrave and Catherine Deneuve. They had babies out of wedlock, but what about Victoria? What about Lou? She had the baby named Nikolai, Nick for short, and Lou was in the delivery room with Jack Nicholson and Champagne. But though he had the tact at least not to bring her to the hospital, he was also with Michelle Phillips, the original California girl from The Mamas and the Papas, having an affair behind Britt's back, made worse because she was her friend. Her housekeeper in Malibu confessed everything. Every man must be allowed a foolish indiscretion, she thought. But things were never quite the same. Britt went to London to star as Mary Goodnight, James Bond's femme de jour in The Man with the Golden Gun, cementing her celebrity status. Along the way, Ryan O'Neill consoled her. On set, with the nanny and the governess, she and Lou stayed in touch until one night in New York. Once again, she grilled the housekeeper. This time, Lou was cheating on Britt with her friend, a model named Phyllis Summers. Britt, I don't want to make it hard on either one of us, he said. It's over. Britt responded, Lou, how can you trade a Rolls Royce for a Ford? Ice cold. 
Six weeks after her breakup with Lou Adler, Britt Eklund met Rod Stewart. Spiky hair, leathery English skin, raspy voice, eyes like hard-boiled eggs. It was 1975, and Rod Stewart was one of the most famous rock stars in the world. He was playing the L.A. Forum, and Britt went to see him perform with her friend Joan Collins along for the ride. Her first impression was that he was a lot taller than she'd figured. She said, I later learned that he suffered from a curvature of the spine, which should have been corrected as a child. He had been left humpback, but one advantage of the curvature was that his rear end protruded. No one wiggled quite like Rod on stage. Perhaps an unprepossessing start, but the wiggle must have had the desired effect. And pretty soon, it was backstage, then dinner and an after party at Cher's house. By the end of the night, she said, I knew I would have Rod, but I wasn't going to be a one-night groupie. She was tired of that, not after what had happened with Lou. Instead of being too available, Britt was going to try something new. She was going to keep him waiting. Apparently, it worked. At a party at Joni Mitchell's house, Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney begged him to sing. But Rod, usually the consummate showman in search of a good time, just couldn't untangle himself from Britt's side. At that moment, she was more hypnotic than Dylan. He was in love. And so was Britt, dressing up for him the way he liked, all in white, virginal, pure, offering to get plastic surgery because he preferred well-endowed women, stealing away for trysts in the back of her Mercedes, parked in Goldie Hawn's driveway. You know, that old chestnut, the usual things you do when you first fall in love, if you're Britt Eklund and Rod Stewart. Besides being a huge star, a great singer, and a tight ass, Rod had other attractive perks. He was her own age, unlike Peter Sellers or Lou Adler. He whisked her to his proper English mansion in Windsor, with its tartans and long oak tables and Victorian bedrooms and model trains. Rod loved model trains almost as much as he loved football, almost as much as he loved women. Almost. If you ever screw another woman while you're with me, I'll chop off your balls, Rod. She advised him one day. Rod considered this. Okay, love, but aren't you lucky to have someone at last who's so young and gorgeous? Rod understood, and the media ate it up. His publicist, Tony Toon, got them in the papers wherever he could. They were the it couple, like Bianca and Mick. But Britt wasn't going to be taken in so easily. She had two children, first of all. Rod had an illegitimate daughter, too, whom he saw from time to time. She wasn't going to rush into anything and move in with him. She was still at Lou Adler's house in Stone Canyon, after all. A few months later, though, they were house hunting along Sunset Boulevard. They found a 20-room place over on Carrollwood Drive, off Sunset in Holmby Hills, and Britt got $100,000 from Rod's record royalty so she could decorate it. Lamps, candelabras, and pelicans made out of ostrich eggs, because that's how it was in 1975. 
when you're Britt Eklund and Rod Stewart. At dinner, even alone, he wore a tuxedo and she wore an evening gown. It was a shrine of our love, she later wrote. I had never been happier. With Rod, I had found total unison. We were the envy of Hollywood. Our bedroom was a love nest in every sense of the phrase. Sometimes, they'd abandon guests by the pool for their third or fourth tryst of the day. When Rod was on stage, he wore her underwear. It was more comfortable, breathable. She all but gave up her career to tend to Rod, joining him on tour to look after him. She even did his makeup. But there were problems. British taxes, the bane of wealthy English rock stars. Rod's ongoing rivalry with frenemy Elton John, who was still the more popular British singer. And Brit's smoldering sex appeal. She fended off other men, even Lee Majors, when she was doing a TV movie of The Six Million Dollar Man with him. And there was the press, always asking if and when they were going to get married. She isn't the right woman for me, Rod told them. I've got no plans to marry her. Britt was outraged, as one might expect. How dare you say those things when we built a home together? Rod defended himself. When they ask about our private lives, tell them to get stuffed. It's none of their bloody business. How can you say that, she continued. Why are you having a press conference then? You do as you're damn well told, Rod yelled. Tables flew. Glass shattered. Tears and recriminations. He ripped her black and silver lace dress. But the next day, he replaced it. One of the only presents he ever gave her. Rod was stingy. Britt bought discount groceries. She paid him rent for her kids. He sometimes tried to get her to pay for his friends and hangers-on, too. All the food and wine and entertaining supplies. He didn't even give her Christmas gifts. Sometimes the phone lines were shut off because he didn't pay the bill. If it was someone's birthday, Britt would buy the gifts and just sign his name. She paid for her own clothes and mended his. She paid for her own nanny and for his and her masseur. Rod caved, never one to deny himself the baser pleasures. She wrote, I had shown Rod my proletarian bard, a new style of living. But life on the road was tough. Destroyed hotel rooms, coke and booze. Rod stayed clean, pretty much, afraid of heroin and coke after once rescuing someone from an overdose. The real drugs, she knew, were the groupies. Oceans of them, pounding on doors, threatening grit, writing her letters. Describe your sex life. Tell me about him. He's missing out being with you. Paranoia haunted him even more than groupies. He was jealous of Elton John, of Mick Jagger. He was afraid he would lose his voice, and that would mean losing everything. He'd hole up in his dressing room, not letting anyone in, not even his parents, not even Brit, canceling concerts and saying he couldn't sing. This was it, he said. His voice was gone. He tried cortisone. He tried acupuncture. Britt suspected it was tension, psychosomatic. 
fear of failure, insecurity. But he was well enough to record tonight's The Night with Brit on backing vocals, speaking in sultry French. I can't sing, Rod. I've got a lousy voice. Just talk to the music. Come on, he prodded. You want me to ask Stevie Nicks to do it? That was all it took. He paid her with a sniff of coke. It was a massive hit. They could be the next Paul and Linda. At least the next Mick and Bianca. No need for movies. Finally, Brit's agent Maggie Abbott begged her to take a part in the period exploitation film Slavers while Rod was on tour. It was filming in Rhodesia, and she slept alone in a mosquito-infested thatched roof hut, dreaming of Rod, far from Carrollwood Drive. Sometimes he'd send her telex, tired of wanking, please come home. And then, we're number one. Tonight's the night, a gauzy ballad about deflowering a virgin had made it to the top of the charts. It was the autumn of 1976. Brit brought him home a stuffed lion's head and skin from Africa. And for a while, life was good. Rod wanted to get married, he said, and Brit did too. Brit loved his family. British, traditional, friendly. They were unpretentious and simple. They liked her kids, Victoria and Nick. Rod still kept in close touch with them, despite it all. It would all work out. He was a family man underneath the rock star posturing, she thought. But marriage hardly ever came up again. They cruised on the Queen Elizabeth II ocean liner, which would have been the perfect setting for a proposal. But no ring. Her agent, Maggie, was getting impatient. She was tired of her client waiting for a rock star who didn't care. She realized before Britt did that Rod wasn't going to commit. It was hopeless. She needed to focus on her career. Rod began to drift away into the recording studio. Brit suggested a summer away with the children in Sweden. Rod told her it would be good for her to get away. So she did. What could it hurt? It was 1977, and Rod and Lou both met her at the airport in L.A. when she got back. Lou was in a yellow Ferrari. Rod was in a red Lamborghini. She handed her son to Lou and kissed Rod, but he looked tired, disinterested. The house on Carrollwood didn't feel the same, even when he sang to her at dinner one night. A song he was working on called You're In My Heart. She started to cry. It was all going to be okay. They'd come back together. They'd get married and he'd settle down. But he wouldn't let her hear the track. Not yet. He stayed busy in the studio. She kept occupied with parties. One night, actor George Hamilton came up to her. An old flame. I never thought you and Rod would bust up, he said to her. She was confused. But we haven't, George. Sorry, Britt, I must be wrong, he said. But I heard that Liz was staying at his house and driving his car. You know, Liz Treadwell? Kind of funny for my old girlfriend and your old boyfriend to be going out. I really thought you knew, Britt. Britt was being cheated on again. Betrayed. This time, it wasn't her nanny who had to break the news. It was George fucking Hamilton. She went home and stalked the dark mansion until dawn, waiting for him to come home from the studio. Nobody knew where he was. 
Rod's publicist, Tony Toon, thought he was at a hotel. Maybe he'd had some drinks. Maybe he'd be back in the morning. When he finally slunk through the door, Britt confronted him. I'm sorry, Britt. I got drunk. I stayed at the Hilton. He turned to walk to the pool. But one more thing, Rod. Tell me about Liz Treadwell. He confessed. How it happened while she was in Sweden. You know how it goes. But Britt was going to make him choose. Rod moved out to a rented house on Mulholland. Liz moved in, and Britt was alone in the hills. I am alone at home with a hole through my heart, she wrote in her diary. George Hamilton offered to send her to his therapist. The therapist's son, it so happened, was a lawyer. He told Britt to serve Rod with a $12 million lawsuit for musical contributions to his work and for a portion of his assets since they lived together. She did, at his studio, with a private detective there too. The paparazzi snapped photos. Rod came back to the house on Carrollwood. They tried to patch things up, but Britt found more phone numbers from more girls, including Liz. Rod fought back with his own lawsuit. He said she was just riding his coattails, along for the ride, and a lousy cook, too. She began to lose weight, not eating. For her birthday, Rod sent her a bottle of Guinness with a note, fatten yourself up, girl. There were a few more tries to get together, but she couldn't ignore the groupies, the deceit, the drunken nights when Tony Toon had to help him to bed. She began to snort cocaine until she saw another therapist who helped her clean up. She moved out of Carrollwood and back to Stone Canyon with help from Lou, who, after their relationship ended, had never let her down. Not really. Are you really going, Britt? Rod asked. She stared back at him. There's no option, is there? The 70s were almost over, and so were Rod and Britt. But she would always think of Rod as her great love, and their house on Carrollwood, that temple of 1970s excess, as her dream home, the pinnacle of pinup glory and rock star excess. In her autobiography in 1980, Britt promised the world that they hadn't seen the last of her. She was getting her career back, and would never again lose herself to a man. She did get married one more time to Slim Jim Phantom from the Stray Cats, and it lasted almost a decade. She had another son, too, Thomas Jefferson, when she was 46. But she never reclaimed her former glory. The 70s never quite came back. There were some shades of that decade's excess when her daughter with Peter Sellers, Victoria, was indicted as part of a cocaine smuggling ring in 1986. She got a three-year suspended sentence. She also made a sex tips video with pal Heidi Fleiss, and she's been on the British reality show Rehab, where she chronicled her meth use and marijuana dependence at Promises Rehab in Malibu. These days, she calls herself a vegan superwoman. Nick Atler's become a vegan, too. He's the culinary director of Coachella. 
Britt is in her late 70s now, and the former Bond girl still fascinates the public, occasionally landing in the tabloids. Recently, she gave an interview telling young Instagram celebrities not to use too many cosmetic fillers like she did. She's grown tough, a wry and self-aware veteran of the fast life like Marianne and Anita before her. It's like she told the Daily Mail a couple of years ago, get on with it. That became my mantra. If I ever think something is too hard, if something seems impossible, I just roll up my sleeves and deal with it. In the end, it's all down to you. And luckily, I'm a very practical person. She's often interviewed about Peter Sellers, too, as more comes to light about his mental health issues and erratic behavior. He died of a heart attack in 1980 at the Dorchester Hotel in London. A biopic called The Life and Death of Peter Sellers came out in 2004, chronicling his turbulent life. Charlize Theron played Brit. Brit wasn't happy at the time. This actress is six feet tall. I am five feet five inches. Eklund snapped at the press. She is 27. I was 20. It is nonsense. They must have made up, though, because Brit accompanied Charlize to Cannes, and they were both smiling on the red carpet, even if Brit really was much shorter. These days, she's also shown up on BBC One's The Real Miracle Hotel, a reality show in which a group of <clears throat> mature celebrities see if they could spend their retirement in India. It was a long way from Carol Wood Drive. As she told the Irish Times, I wasn't sure if I could deal with the poverty in India. Children sleep on the pavement surrounded by waste, it's a terrible way to live, and I have no solution, which bothers me today. She was also on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, a British reality show where celebrities attempt to survive in the wilderness, hunting for food under physical and mental duress. Brit had lived with Rod Stewart and Peter Sellers, so maybe it was an easy mission? Her episodes were in the Australian jungle, and she somehow managed to look glamorous in camping attire. Britt has also been outspoken about cosmetic surgery. When she was in her 50s, she got lip fillers, which she said, destroyed my looks and ruined my face. It was the biggest mistake of my life. She's still her blunt self. In 2008, she criticized Nicole Kidman, no stranger to dramatic marriages, for allegedly taking extreme measures to look young. It's fatal when actresses use Botox, Eklund said at the time. I remember seeing Cold Mountain, and it really looked to me like Nicole Kidman had been using it. Her face was neither sad nor glad, nor anything. She was just like a painted doll. I thought, why would she do that? Why indeed? Britt, admired for her look since her own father took notice, must have had some inkling. Now, though, Britt says that she's okay with her age. I feel great now better than I have for many years. Getting older happens to everyone, she said. It's pointless complaining about it or wishing you could change. Rod Stewart's gotten older too, although who knows about the plastic surgery. Over the years, he's been married to Rachel Hunter, Penny Lancaster, and Alana Stewart, yet another of George Hamilton's exes. 
Now he has eight kids, including Sean Stewart, who you might also see on reality shows from time to time. Sean and his dad pled guilty to misdemeanor battery after punching a hotel security guard at a New Year's Eve party in 2019. Rod Stewart was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist in 1994 and again in 2012 as part of The Faces. He won a Grammy in 2005. He was knighted in 2016. But this story isn't about him. This is about Britt Eklund, the ugly duckling turned international sex symbol, Bond girl, movie star, and long-suffering muse who just barely survived her hard-lived youth. This story is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Kara Baskin. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz, Matt Tahaney, and Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.